Well, good morning. I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Acts. Our text for this morning is that lengthy passage that was read to you a little earlier. I thought it very important for us to be able to read that whole sermon to get that in your minds because uh, this morning I plan to uh, deal with the, the whole sermon. Uh, that is the sermon that, pre- that Peter preached as recorded in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. If you don't have a physical copy of the scripture, uh, you're welcome to use one of the Bibles in the rack in front of you and you'll find Acts 2 on page 910 and 911 of that copy of the scripture. And if you're uh, joining us uh, by our live stream, I want to welcome you as well. I know uh, several are, are at home uh, joining us uh, online, and uh, thank you all also for being there. I invite, if you are at home, that you you'd use this time to really focus on the Word of God so that we could all get the benefit uh, that we need uh, from God's Word at this time. Acts chapter 2, And uh, that is our text, basically the whole chapter, beginning with verse 14 and all the way till verse 41. Now, even though this section of Scripture is long, I think it deserves our attention to to deal with in one sermon for a, a number of reasons. And one reason is this. It is the first recorded sermon in the book of Acts. It's the very first one. And as such, it kind of sets the tone for Christian preaching from this moment throughout all history. Uh, If you've been uh, at a concert where the orchestra is tuning up, you might be familiar with that, the sound of a reed instrument, usually a clarinet playing an A, uh, and and, uh, all the other instruments are tuning uh, to that one note. This first sermon is kind of like that initial note that's being played that for all time, the rest of Christian proclamation, Christian preaching uh, is set to this tone. So it sets the tone, uh, but also I think that we want to deal with it as a whole because not only is it the first and as such sets the tone, but it was also an incredibly effective sermon. Um, This was Peter's, uh, not his first speech as recorded in the book of Acts, but his first sermon. Now, if you ever have heard someone's first sermon, have any of you had the experience of hearing someone preach for the very first time? I feel sorry for professors of homiletics in in Christian colleges that they have to listen to these, they have to endure first sermons, and I honestly feel really bad for the people that had to hear me when I preach for the first time. I still feel bad for you that you have to hear me preach from week after week, but if you ever heard a first sermon, it can be especially ineffective. That was not the case with Peter's first sermon. In fact, Peter's first sermon was so effective, the Bible tells us at the end of this chapter, there were added to the group of Jesus' followers 3,000 souls. Now, beginning with 120 Christians at the time, that's an increase of 2,500%. Now, I would say that's a pretty effective sermon. I wouldn't mind being able to preach sermons like that. So it's, it's worth our consideration as a whole, not only because it is the first sermon and thus sets the tone, but also because it's an amazingly effective sermon and also because it's a comprehensive sermon. And by that I mean it has all the component parts of essential Christian proclamation. In that way, it's kind of like a fire. The essential components of a fire, you've got fuel, oxygen, and heat. And here in this sermon, you have all the components of Christian proclamation, all the components of the essential 
basics of the Christian message present here in the sermon. And any other presentation of Christianity, any other appeal for a person to believe in Jesus Christ that we find has either explicitly or implicitly these components that we find here in Acts chapter 2 in this very first sermon. So for these reasons, I think that we should... We should look at this as a whole, take a whole sermon to examine uh, Acts chapter 2 and Peter's first sermon. Now, you might think, okay, if this is such a basic Christian proclamation, if this is the very first Christian sermon, if this is actually contains all the component uh, parts of the, the basic Christian message, then why, why can't we just skip it? I mean, this is, we're, we're Christians, uh, at least, you, you're, you're in church and you understand what Christianity is. Can't we just move on to some more interesting stuff? I mean, is not studying a sermon that has the most basic components of the Christian message a little bit like someone reading the ingredients of oatmeal to you? Don't tell me what's in it, I already know. And yet, there are reasons why we need to return to this. And I'll present to you just two. First is look at the response to this sermon in verse 42. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, what was the apostles' teaching? What had the apostles taught? The sermon that Peter just preached. That was the apostles' teaching. Now, it doesn't say they heard it and it was like, that's interesting. Tell us something different now. No, the, the, the word that's translated devoted to has this idea of they continued to investigate, they continued to immerse themselves. They, they, it, it, it has this idea of continuous action. They kept on devoting themselves to the teaching that Peter had just presented here. So, the, the, the apostles' message, this basic Christian proclamation is important, not only because the text tells us that the early Christians devoted themselves to it, but there's a second reason, and it's a more personal reason to us right today, and that is because we need to revisit this not because the message is complicated. It's simple. It's really simple. We need to come back to this because our hearts are complicated. We need to get the basic components of the Christian message, not because it's hard to remember mentally, not because it's convoluted and complex, not because it involves bringing to bear a variety of philosophical arguments and scientific considerations. No, it's a simple message. The reason why we need it again and again is not because the message is complicated, it's because our hearts are complicated. And we're always veering one way or another, and we're, we need to get back on track. We always are finding ourselves in one ditch or another ditch, and, and revisiting the basic components of the Christian proclamation is a way of keeping us on the path. We need this. And I think it's going to be incredibly clear to you why it's so important for us to get this and revisit it again and again. So here, here's the question then. I just told you, this sermon contains the basic components of all the, the essential Christian proclamation, what it means to present the basics of the Christian faith. All right, well, what are they? All right, what, what's the underlying logic? What does Peter present, and what do the, uh, later on, the, we have message, sermons of Paul presented and other sermons of Peter. What's the basic, uh, what are the basic moves, or what are the basic components there? Well, I want to point out three, and it's not in consecutive order, but that these are present here. First of all, something happened, what happened has a meaning, and what it means calls for a response, okay? Those are the three 
essential components of all Christian proclamation. I know it doesn't sound profound right now, but I'm going to explain what, I, uh, what, what those are. Something happened. What happened has a meaning, and that meaning calls for a response. Something happened. What happened has a meaning, and that meaning calls for a response. Okay, got it? Those, those three basic components, and I'm, I'm going to show you where those are. So first of all, something happened. Something happened. This is common to, to any Christian proclamation. It's, an, it's a declaration that something, I mean, historically, something, an event happened. Now, I want to talk to you about the evidence for this event and then the event itself, okay? So don't get confused. I'm, I'm going to talk about the evidence of the event. That's not the event itself. And then I'm going to talk about what happened, all right? So, first of all, something happened. What is the evidence that's, that something happened? Well, if you go back in chapter 2 to this, uh, the event, the, the um not the gospel event, but rather the event that happened when the Holy Spirit was poured out. People were speaking in tongues. They were speaking in other languages. And there was a bunch of people that were visiting Jerusalem for the, pe- the Feast of Pentecost. And they heard their own languages from their own territory uh, being, being spoken. And these people that had apparently never learned these varieties of languages declaring, as they say, the wonderful works of God. Now, this is an evidence of something that had happened. It'd be kind of like if, if and, and what happened is evidenced by something that is happening. So the thing that is happening in the first part of chapter 2 is an evidence that something happened. It'd be kind of like if, if one summer evening you were to be strolling by your favorite park and to your surprise, that park that is normally just has a handful of people in it that evening is packed with people. I mean, there are people with blankets on the ground. There's guys with grills, and they're grilling hamburgers. And there's there's pickup trucks with the uh, with, with people just sitting in lawn chairs on, on the bed of their pickup trucks. And 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 then as you start like looking at this and wondering what in the world is going on, there is this massive explosion. And you look and you see something flying up into the air, and then it explodes in this this pink flower, fiery flower in the air. And you're like, what is going on? So you walk up to this guy at the grill, and you're like, hey, can you please tell me, can you, what, can you explain this? And he says, oh, 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 I'll tell you, what's happening is because of something that happened on July 4th of 1776. Like, what happened? Well, the Second Continental Congress, uh, they, they signed this, this document called the Declaration of Independence, thus declaring the independence of the American colonies from an evil and distant empire, and, and now we're free. Because something happened in the past, something is happening now. The fact that the Spirit had been poured out upon people, the fact that they were declaring the wonderful works of God was an evidence that something had happened. That's why why the people are asking in verse 12, look at chapter 2, verse 12, what does this mean? The phrase translated, what does this mean, could be rendered this way, explain, please, explain. Can someone please tell me what is going on? What happened in the past that gave rise to this happening right now? Well, what happened, Peter is about to explain. But can I just, can I just say this? The thing that should prompt other people watching Christians to find out more about the gospel ought to be that something is happening in our lives. There's something different. There's something that's, that's remarkable 
Remarkable and amazing. Notice what, what, look at the words that they are, are using here. They were amazed, verse 12. They were perplexed. Some mocked. It's not, uh, it's not a consistently positive response, but there is a response. There is a, uh, there is a, a great amount of wondering and perplexity and uh, astonishment at what's going on in the lives of these people. Now, I, I promised you last week that I would explain this idea about their speaking in different tongues, and why it is. There, there are two things about this uh, from verse 5 to verse 13 that can puzzle us. One, why is it that they had to speak in different languages? Because the, they could have as easily gotten the message across by speaking in Greek. That was the language that nearly everybody in the Roman Empire spoke. Many people also spoke Latin. And a lot of the people that assembled there that day probably also spoke Aramaic. And the other thing is, why does Luke spend so much time uh, listing all these regions? What's going on with that? Well, these questions will be cleared up for us if we see what Luke is doing. He is reminding us of an event that happened thousands of years before that's recorded in Genesis chapter 10 and 11. Genesis chapter 10 has a list of regions and nations very similar to Luke's list right here. And on the heels of that list, you have in Genesis chapter 11, a record of people who were gathered together to build a tower to ascend to heaven in defiance of God. All these nations coming together, trying to ascend to heaven, trying to prove their own superiority. And God comes down, as it were, sees what they are doing, and scatters their languages so they can't understand each other anymore. It leaves that attempt to ascend heaven unfinished, and they all go their separate ways. Now what is happening is this. At the day of Pentecost, after a man has really ascended to heaven, God now unites people not in defiance to him, but in submission to and in worship to him. Now what God is doing is He is bringing together these languages and these various cultures. So instead of proclaiming their own wonderful works, now they are united in proclaiming the wonderful works of God. That's what's going on here. That's why they're not speaking in Greek, although they could have. That's why they're speaking in different languages, because God is showing them something. He's showing them this. The Spirit is now reversing the effects of the curse. The Spirit is reversing the effects of sin in our lives, societally, socially. He's reversing the social effects of sin. Socially, what does sin do? It fractures. It, it, it breaks people apart. It ruins relationships. It destroys nations. It ruins politics. But when God's Spirit comes upon people, when God's Spirit Spirit fills people individually and as groups, what it does, it does it do? It unites them, not in pride, not in rebellion, but it unites them in praise to God. That's the significance of the speaking in tongues on the day of Pentecost. It's the Spirit of God reversing the effects of sin. When I was a teenager, probably even junior high, my brother and I, well, we wanted to be movie stars. The problem is we only had one camcorder. Remember the camcorder? The good old camcorder. It, it was, those of you who are under the age of, what, 25, 20, might not remember that you couldn't just take a video by 
by picking up your phone and, and you had to lug this thing around, around with you. Um, what, but we, what we like to do is star in movies. And when we provided our own movie scripts, we did the backdrop by having a little electric keyboard on the desk behind us. It was real-time uh, you know, movie back, uh, soundtrack. Uh, it was real time. We were playing on a keyboard while we were doing these movies. Well, one thing that we got a really big kick out of was putting things in reverse. Especially entertaining was us eating an apple in reverse because it looked like we were putting the apple together piece by piece from our mouth. It was just really cool. But, but especially when you can reverse something breaking or something just being tumbled apart. We, we'd build something uh, out of blocks or, or, and then just kick it uh, apart. But then when you played it in reverse, what you saw was all these pieces scattered all over the floor as if by magic, just coming back together again, assembling themselves into the thing that we had built originally. You know what? What is going on with the work of the Spirit? It is sin in reverse. It is all the brokenness of sin now being healed by the Spirit of God. That's the evidence of what's happening. Now, I told you that the, the, the essence of the Christian proclamation is this, something happened. So what is it that happened? What are these events that, ha- that happened? We find them recorded here in chapter 2 and verse 22. Here's what happened. I told you the evidence of what happened is the Spirit of God at work to reverse the effects of the curse. Now, here are the events. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up. I'll stop there. Those are the events. An essential component of Christian proclamation is the reporting of certain historical events. Jesus of Nazareth lived, he was crucified, he rose again, and he ascended to heaven. You don't get Christianity without those things. You don't get Christianity without the real historical events of an actual man who actually lived and actually died and actually rose from the dead. Now, some of you are saying, like, why is that even an issue? Why are you saying that? something I've heard my entire life. Because in every generation... There is always an effort to undermine the historical reality of these things. People often say in every generation, we, we can believe the heart of Christianity and say it didn't, it's not necessary to say these things really happened. It's not necessary to say that Jesus actually rose from the dead. In fact, I was looking at, this comes up again and again and again. Uh, several years ago, at a, new, uh, a professor at New York Uni- University was interviewed, interviewed about this. He said this, the miracle of a bodily resurrection is something I rejected without moving away from the basic idea of Christianity. What I mean, he says, is that we can reach the lowest points of our lives of going deep into a place that feels like death and then find our way out again, that's the story of the resurrection now. That's the story the resurrection now tells me. And at Easter, this is expressed in a community and at its best through the compassion of others. And that change from a literal to a metaphorical approach has given the story more power, he said. If the apostles heard this, they would say, we don't know what you're talking about. 
a metaphorical resurrection would be no resurrection at all. A metaphorical human being would be no good for anybody. What's the point of just imagining that there it could be a, a resurrection out of some dark place, a reviving of hope, if it wasn't real? Here's the thing. If, if, and I can understand why people, why people doubt this. After all, Jesus owned people in Jesus' day doubted the resurrection. But wouldn't you at least want to believe it's true? Wouldn't you at least prefer to believe in a universe that has meaning in which there is hope for resurrection guaranteed rather than one that will be absolutely guaranteed to just flatten out in millions of years? I mean, if, if you care about the environment, if you care about justice, if you care about the poor, then aren't you interested in knowing that there is historical proof that all these things matter? And that proof has been offered in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The reason why this is important to say, hey, the, the Christian proclamation is based essentially on historical realities is that in every generation there are people that say it doesn't matter. You could have a Christianity and just cut all those histor historical things out of it. You can't have it. You cut the heart out of the Christian faith. Essential to the Christian faith is this proclamation. Jesus really lived. He really died. He really rose again. And he really ascended to heaven. You can't get around it. You can't have Christianity around it. The apostles would know nothing of a metaphorical resurrection, of an imaginative resurrection. When the apostles presented the Christian message, they recounted the central historical events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. But perhaps I wonder if the reluctance to believe these things are not based so much on the absence of historical evidence, but upon a much deeper, there's a much deeper reason why people have a hard time believing this. And that takes us second to this. What happened has a meaning. Okay, basic to Christian proclamation. What is the Christian message all about? Something happened. What happened? Jesus of Nazareth lived perfectly, did miracles, claimed things about himself, that he was the Son of God. He was crucified. Three days later, he rose again and 40 days after that, he ascended to heaven. Now, what does that even mean then? What does that mean? Well, the underlying logic of Peter's sermon and the underlying logic of the apostles' proclamation of the Christian message is this. Since our scriptures tell us that there is coming a descendant of King David a thousand years ago, one of his descendants. There is coming a descendant of King David who is going to be so filled with the Holy Spirit that he can dispense it to others. And since our scriptures tell us that that descendant will be a conqueror of death, and since Jesus himself was so filled with the Holy Spirit, and since Jesus himself... Jesus of Nazareth conquered death, then he must be the one that our scriptures have been talking about. That was, that was the, the Copernican revolution for the apostles and for Jesus' early followers. If, if, if Jesus of Nazareth had been a good teacher, although a sometimes deluded teacher who who unfortunately met his demise at the hands of his own religious leaders who gave him over to the Roman authorities to be crucified, that would have been a really sad story for Jesus' followers and probably a happy story for Jesus' enemies. But, on the other hand, if three days later that same man was now 
alive, having risen from the dead because of His own power, that changes the way we see the entire Scripture. That, that's, that changes the way they saw their entire, the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. It means that every prophecy about that anointed one, every prophecy about that forever king had been fulfilled in Jesus. That's what it meant. It changes everything. And that's why Peter, speaking to a primarily Jewish audience, that is why Peter quotes three passages of the Old Testament, one from a prophet, two from the Psalms, Joel 2, Psalm 16, and Psalm 110. The reason why he quotes, quotes Psalm 16 is because he's saying, you remember that Psalm that said, that, that David was speaking, almost putting words into the mouth of his descendant, that, that you're not going to let me rot in the grave. I, I'm going to be able to see your presence. You know what? That wasn't actually about David. David was a prophet. He was speaking of someone to come. You know that David died. His grave is with us. David's body is rotted. But the body of Jesus didn't rot. He must have been talking about Jesus. That's exactly why after quoting this passage uh, this is beginning in verse 25 of Acts. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Look at verse 30. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That is the anointed one, Jesus. He was the one whose soul was not abandoned to Hades. Now Peter is saying, we've got to see all of our scriptures in light of Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Messiah. That's why also he quotes uh, from Psalm 110 and verses 34 and 35. He says, not only is Psalm 16 about Jesus, but Psalm 110 is about Jesus. Psalm 16, if that talks about Jesus' resurrection from the dead, Psalm 110 is talking about Jesus' ascension to the Father. The Lord said to my Lord. What Lord could that be talking about? That is Jesus Christ. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Peter sees, along with the other followers of Jesus, that in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth must be the Christ who rose from the dead, who ascended to the Father, and now because of that, and this takes us to his quotation from Joel, he must be the one with the authority and power, not only to be filled with the Holy Spirit for himself, but also to be the one who can give the Holy Spirit to all who believe in him. That's why Peter begins his sermon in response to the question, what is the meaning of this? Explain this. Peter says, here's what's happened. Jesus of Nazareth, yeah, you thought he was a criminal, you crucified him, actually he's alive because he was the Christ, he's ascended, and now here's what you're seeing, you are seeing this Christ pouring the Spirit of God into the lives of people who believe in him, so now they are declaring in languages you can understand the wonderful works of God, that's the meaning of this. Christian proclamation is essentially a report that something happened. That is, Jesus lived, he died, he rose again, he ascended. And what happened has a meaning. Because of that, it means he is the Christ, that is the anointed one, and he is the Lord of all. That's what it means. You, you see the unbreakable link between the events and the meaning. If it is true that Jesus did arise from the dead, it must mean that He's the Lord of all. 
You can't escape that conclusion. And if it means that He is Lord of all, that means you must respond to Him. Okay, so what is basic to Christian proclamation? Those three components I said, they're just like what it takes to make a fire. You've got fuel, heat, and oxygen. So with Christian proclamation, something happened. What happened has meaning, and what, what that meaning is demands a response from you. And that's where Peter got interrupted in his sermon. He got interrupted. Look at this in verse 37. After he said in verse 36, let all the house of Israel know therefore for certain that, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? The, here's, here's the reality. The facts of, of Christianity, the historical facts, Jesus lived, died, rose again, ascended to the Father has a meaning. It means He's Lord and Savior. He's the anointed one, and that calls for a response. The people knew it. They knew it called for a response. They couldn't be neutral to this. How could you be neutral to a de declaration that you had just killed the anointed one of God, the Lord of the universe? How could you be neutral to such a declaration? Of course, coming from their hearts is... Having been cut to the heart, they ask, what shall we do? Now, are you puzzled by Peter's response? What did Peter say in response? He said this, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, I just want us to, to sit on this a little bit because you might have thought that Peter would say one of two more extreme kind of things. On the one hand, you might have thought, I thought what Peter was going to say was, actually, there's nothing for you to do. Just, just go on your merry way. I've just given you a perspective on things. I mean, I'm just, I'm just I, I didn't expect you to, to, to respond to this. I'm just, just telling you one angle of reality. On the other hand, you might think, oh, this was Peter's chance. Ah, I'm glad you asked. What should we do? Well, first of all, let's talk about your money. Let's talk about your morals. Let's talk about your meanness. Let's talk about all those things because, yeah, you crucified the Lord of glory, and now you've got to make things right. You've got to go through some program of reform before he will actually be willing to forgive you. The proper response to the Christian message is neither you're fine, go your merry way, nor is it you're terrible, clean up your act. It is this, completely change your way of thinking about Jesus. And when you do, publicly declare to everyone that you have by being baptized. You, you see what Peter called for was not, it was not a clean up your act, nor was it, hey, just go your merry way and do nothing. No, it was a radical change of thinking that produces a change of behavior that, that is called forth by the fact that Jesus is the Lord, the Messiah, the Christ. 
See, that's the meaning of the words repent and be baptized. To repent is to completely change your way of thinking about something. If you have ever done a UE on a road before, you know what it means to repent. Have you ever had to, have you ever, you're driving along and you suddenly realize, I left my coffee at home. I've got to turn back and get that. Or have you ever been, okay, thank you, I saw at least one person raise their hands. Thank you, that happened to me just this past week. Or have you ever been, in a circumstance where you realize, I am going the opposite direction that I ought to be going. And you, as soon as you can, you don't want to go, you don't want to go an inch further on that road because it's taking you the opposite direction. I need to turn around. I need to be going that direction. That's what repentance is. It's, oh, I thought Jesus, I, I thought that he was just a buddy. I thought that he was just someone to help me along in life. I thought that Jesus was just kind of the icon of my political agenda to make America what I think it should be. I thought Jesus was this or that, but now I see that he's none of these things. He is the Lord of all and the Savior that I must call to for my personal salvation, for my personal sins. That is who Jesus is, and that is the way you must think about him, because he is the resurrected and ascended Christ. That is what Peter meant when he says, God has made Jesus, this Lord in Christ, the one you crucified. That's the response to Jesus. It's a completely different way of thinking about him that produces then a changed life, a public public display of your sincerity by being baptized. Now, this would have been... Uh, this would have been a great call to hum humility on the part of these listeners because for them, baptism was a right that should be preserved for only those who were non-Jews coming into uh, to Judaism. Peter is saying, doesn't matter. Everybody has to think differently about Jesus, whether you're Jew or non-Jew. Whether you're, well, it doesn't matter what region of the Roman Empire you're from, this is something for everybody. If you think the Christian message is just an uplifting story that keeps you going in life, you don't understand it. If you think the Christian proclamation is just a rigorous program of moral or political or social reform, you don't understand it. The Christian message is the declaration that Jesus is the Lord of all and the Savior of all who believe in him because he died, he rose from the dead, and he has now the authority to give the Holy Spirit to all who trust in him. You see, there's only, there are only two kinds of people in the room today. It's those who need to believe this for the first time and those who need to keep on believing it. I started out this message by saying, the thing about this Christian proclamation, that is the gospel. I could have used a short term for that, the gospel. The thing about the gospel is, is not that it's complicated. Our hearts are complicated. And just because you've believed it for the first time doesn't mean that something won't come along in your life and bam, whack you right off and think, well, if I do a better job in life, then maybe God would love me more. The Christian message says, God, that doesn't work that way. It's not by your own efforts. It's because Jesus is the Savior. He's the one who died, and he's the one who rose again. You think you could add to this work of salvation by 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 giving a little more money or by being a better dad or a better mom, you think that you could somehow contribute to the, the work of the resurrected Lord of the universe by adding your own little tiny bit to the, to the pot? No, it's, it's, it's nothing. But we tend to think that way. We tend to disbelieve this message because our hearts are complicated. 
I, I just want to point out in closing how, how we can apply this because I, I said earlier, a lot of times those of us who are Christians, we've heard this message again and again. We think, how, what is this? Why do I need to hear this again? The people in the early church, they kept devoting themselves to this message and so must we. If you believe that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, it would silence your despair. And some of you, my friends, find yourself despairing day after day, week after week. You despair for many reasons, not the least of which is your sense of guilt and shame. But if you believed and believe more fully that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, it would silence that sense of despair. Many of you are familiar with the name John Bunyan. He wrote the famous allegory, The Pilgrim's Progress, but he also wrote other books. One of the books was an exposition of John 7, uh, 6, 37. If you think I can preach a long time on a little bit of, uh, of Scripture, he wrote a whole book on one verse, okay? But in this book, he, he, uh, he's explaining the implications of Jesus' words, all that the Father gives me I will never cast out. Jesus is saying, all that the Father gives me, I'm never going to cast out. And he anticipates a variety of objections, a variety of, of, of the voices of despair that may be pulsating in your head. But I am a great sinner, say you. I will never cast you out, says Christ. But I am an old sinner, you say. I will never cast you out, says Christ. But I am a hard-hearted sinner, you say. I will never cast you out, says Christ. But I am a backsliding sinner. I will never cast you out, says Christ. But I have served Satan all my days, you say. I will never cast you out, says Christ. But I have sinned against light, you say. But I will never cast you out, says Christ. But I have sinned against mercy, you say. I will never cast you out, says Christ. But I have no good thing to bring with me. You say, I will never cast you out, says Christ. My friend, do you need that message? Do you need to be reminded of that message? This is the heart of Christian proclamation. It's that Jesus is Savior, not you. He is the Lord, not you. He will never cast you out. If you believe that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, it would not only silence your despair, it would smother your pride because I think we need that too. Perhaps the reason you get so offended easily, so quick to be angry, so uptight about all kinds of things that people say or don't say to you or the way that people treat you, maybe it's because you think you deserve more respect, more recognition than what you're getting. Maybe what you want is actually right. Maybe it's actually Maybe it's right. Maybe it's a good thing that God wants you to have respect and recognition, but you're seeking it all the, in all the wrong ways. And by believing that Jesus of Nazareth is the Lord and Savior, you're believing in the one who gave up all respect and recognition, even from his heavenly Father, so that you can have the respect and recognition as a child of God. I mean, how, that's all the recognition you could possibly want. Believing that Jesus is your Savior will absolutely smother that sense of pride. It would soothe your fears. We live in such a fearful time. What is Lord of your life? 
What's the Lord of this world? Is it politics? Is it wealth? Is it business? Is it health? If it were these things, we would have reason to fear. And yet the Lord of all of life is not politics, business, wealth. It's not a pharmacy company. It's none of these. It's Jesus, the one who conquered death. It's Jesus, the Lord and Savior. And if you believe that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, finally, it would stir you to action. It would stir you to action. That the fact that Jesus is Savior doesn't, it leaves no one complacent. It unleashes our tongues and it lets fly our feet and hands to serve Him in this world for His glory. That's what it does. Not out of a sense of guilt, not out of a sense of obligation, but because we know that we have believed in the One who is the Savior of the world. That's what believing in Jesus as Lord and Savior does. And that's why we need to hear again and again this basic message of Christian proclamation. Would you bow your heads? In closing, we're going to sing one song of response. This, the power of the cross, Son of God slain for us. Would you sing that from the, from the authentic sense of your own heart having believed this message? And if you are struggling to believe that, then you can simply call out to him as your Lord and Savior today. And if you need more help, my friend, please talk to me or one of the other pastors or someone who brought you.